Good morning, everyone. Today's scripture reading will be taken from Leviticus chapter 2. Verse 1. When anyone brings a grain offering as an offering to the Lord, his offering shall be of fine flour. He shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it and bring it to Aaron's sons, the priests. And he shall take from it a handful of the fine flour and oil with all of its frankincense and the priest shall burn this as his memorial portion on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part, the Lord's food offerings. Verse 4. When you bring a grain offering baked in the oven as an offering, it shall be unleavened loaves of fine flour mixed with oil, or unleavened wafers smeared with oil. And if your offering is a grain offering baked on a griddle, it shall be of fine flour unleavened mixed with oil. You shall break it in pieces and pour oil on it. It is a grain offering. And if your offering is a grain offering cooked on a pan, it shall be made of fine flour with oil. And you shall bring the grain offering that is made of these things to the Lord, and where it is presented to the priests, he shall bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take from the grain offering its memorial portion and burn this on the altar, a food offering with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. But the rest of the grain offering shall be for Aaron and his sons. It is the most holy part of the Lord's food offerings. Verse 11. No grain offering that you bring to the Lord shall be made with leaven, for you shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. As an offering of first fruits, you may bring to them to the Lord, but they shall not be offered on the altar for a pleasing aroma. You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from the grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Verse 14. If you offer a grain offering of first fruits to the Lord, you shall offer for, for the grain offering of your first fruits, fresh ears, roasted with fire, crushed new grain. And you shall put oil on it and lay frankincense on it. It is a grain offering. And the priest shall burn as its memorial portion some of the crushed grain and some of the oil with all its frankincense. It is a food offering to the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Yen, for reading so clearly for us, Jeremiah, for leading us in worship, and Cheyenne for praying so beautifully for us. Would you join me in the word of prayer as we see God's help to understand his word this morning? Father, we thank you that this too is your word, and we pray that as we unpack the book of Leviticus, that it will draw us close to the person and work of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, friends, as I was alluded to in uh, Cheyenne's prayers, uh, we are... Some of us are in a bit of a season of mourning. Uh, some of you might know a well-known Christian leader by the name of Tim Keller. If you're a non-Christian, you're visiting for, uh, us for the first time, you may not know this name. Uh, Tim Keller was a very well-respected Christian leader, very influential in many parts of the world, and including in our church and in our lives. Uh, we are part of the City to City Network that was started by Tim Keller uh, in New York City. I first began to uh, listen to his sermons and read his books and read his articles in 2007. Uh, in 2014, I had the pleasure of meeting him for the first time. 
in 2018 another time. And uh, recently in 2021 and 2022, I had the crazy honor of being in this small group together with others around the world and discussing different matters with Tim Keller. He had wrote a, written a list of papers and we were discussing those papers uh, and seeing how best to apply those papers. Uh, what struck me was not just his brilliant mind, but his gentle, unassuming, and kind godliness. And um, yeah, I barely got through this in the first service. And uh, yeah, he he's meant a lot. And I think it's no exaggeration to say uh, that without Tim Keller, I wouldn't be in ministry today. There would be no OCC. We would not have planted this church, and we would not be where we are right now. I will always be thankful uh, for God's work in me through the life of Tim Keller. You know, we pick our sermon series and we designed the text uh, way in advance last year. And today we have Leviticus 2 that speaks about gratitude to God. And I thank God that it's no, it's no accident that we're able to open up this passage this morning. Well, friends, gratitude is a very powerful thing. Very, very powerful thing. An article in the Harvard Health Publishing website says, being grateful helps people connect to something bigger than themselves. It's strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness and helps people feel more positive emotions, relish good experiences, improve their health, deal with adversity, and build strong relationships. Leviticus 2, friends, is all about how we as God's people are to show gratitude to God for the things that he has done. You'll recall that we just preached about the burnt offering in Leviticus 1. Leviticus 2 is about the grain offering. Now, what's the difference between these two offerings? The one thing is, the burnt offering, as we explored last week, was an offering with animals that brought atonement and reconciliation with God. Through the death of an animal offered on the altar, the sinner is forgiven and reconciled to God. The grain offering doesn't bring atonement, but it follows atonement. As a result of being atoned, having our sins atoned for and being reconciled to God, we then show gratitude to God. God's people show gratitude to God by bringing a grain offering. It doesn't bring atonement, but it follows from atonement. Now, we also saw last week that the burnt offering points forward to the finished work of Christ on the cross for our sins. It's Jesus, the ultimate burnt offering that brings us reconciliation with God and forgiveness. And so we too, as God's people who have experienced the atoning sacrifice of Christ, we too bring a grain offering to God in gratitude for all the things that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ has done. What was the grain offering? It was a share of their crops. It was the fruit of their labor. And there were both expensive and inexpensive ways to offer this grain offering. If you look at verses 1 to 3, it says that the grain offering could be offered as uncooked flour mixed with frankincense. If you look at verses 14 to 16, the grain offering could be from the first fruits. Now, what are the first fruits? The first fruits are the first crop of the season. And once again, you would mix that first crop of the season with frankincense and you would roast it as a grain offering. Now, friends, frankincense was a very expensive gum resin that only the very rich could afford. So verses 1 and 3 and 14 to 16 give us the grain offering as it would be offered by the very rich in Israel. But friends, in verses 4 to 10, it gives us a number of other options that are way cheaper but more labor-intensive to offer the very same grain offering. In verses 4 to 10, 
It tells us you can do away with the frankincense, but you would need to cook the flour instead. And there are three ways that you can cook the flour. There's diversity and choice here. In verse 4, you could bake it in an oven. In verse 5, you could toast it on a griddle. And in verse 7, you could fry it on a pan. In other words, you can offer a, a loaf of bread, uh, maybe a waffle, or even a flat bread or some kind of a pancake as a grain offering to the Lord. So the second way is much cheaper, but more labor-intensive. Now recall, last week in the, grain off, uh, in the burnt offering, there were various options. There was the bull, which was the most expensive of all offerings. And it was only the very wealthy in Israel that could offer the bull. There was also the bird that you could offer, and that was the cheapest. The very poorest could offer that bird. And in between, there was something called a goat or a lamb. And that was to show us that the burnt offering was for everyone. The atoning sacrifice was for everyone. Irregardless of socioeconomic status, the offering was for everyone. Now, in the same way, the grain offering is also for everyone. There are expensive ways of offering it, but also cheaper ways, but more labor-intensive ways of offering this grain offering to the Lord. Everyone has a reason to give thanks to God and to show gratitude to God by offering the grain offering. Now, friends, as you gathered in worship today, did you notice anyone bringing in bags of flour or grains, uh, cakes? Cakes maybe sometimes, right? But no one's actually laying it on the altar and offering it to God in worship. Why is that? Well, friends, part of the reason is we are no longer in an agricultural society. We are not like that anymore. And because of the coming of Christ, the nature of the grain offering has indeed changed. Turn with me, friends, to Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. Philippians chapter 4, verse 18. Now, friends, this is the Apostle Paul speaking to the Philippian Christians. And this is what he said. He says in verse, four, in verse 18, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent me, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. You see Paul actually picking up themes from Leviticus chapter 2. He calls it a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable to God and pleasing to God. These gifts that the Philippian Christians have given to Paul. Now friends, what exactly are these gifts? Well, in the context of the book of Philippians, the gifts were for the financial support that the Philippian Christians had sent to Paul to support his work of ministering the gospel. It's the modern equivalent of the grain offering. So what is the grain offering? What is the gift in our modern context? It's what we do to support gospel ministry. It's the finances we give to support gospel ministry. But friends, I would venture to say that it's more than just finances. Bearing in mind that there was a more expensive and a cheaper way to offer the grain offering. Bearing in mind that there was a more labor-intensive way of offering the grain offering, I think you can stretch this gift not just to refer to finances, but anything that we give in support of gospel work in our day. It's about our time, it's about our talent, and it's about our treasure. So the grain offering for us, friends, is what we offer of ourselves for the work of gospel ministry. And we offer this not to gain atonement or to gain acceptance with Jesus Christ, but because we've already been atoned, because we've received forgiveness in Jesus Christ. We support gospel work because we're grateful for the gospel. And that is what the grain offering is for us. 
My friends, many of us think that this giving is a necessary evil to prevent the church from falling apart, to make sure the pastors uh, don't starve. We think it's not very important, it's just a necessary evil, and we don't quite like it. But here in Leviticus 2, we'll see that offering the grain offering, that bringing our time, talent, and treasure to God actually has many spiritual benefits that accrue to the person making the offering. So let's look at three things that the grain offering does for us. The grain offering is reminding, supplying, and purifying. Let's look at the first one, reminding. Now the priest will take a portion of the grain offering and burn it on the altar. And this produces a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That phrase is used in verses 2 and 9. Now if you look at verses 2, 9, and 16, this portion that is taken from the grain offering and is burnt on the altar to produce a pleasing aroma, that portion is called the memorial portion. It's a tribute. It's a tribute given to a king to remind the king of his covenant relationship with his people. Now, friends, it seems strange for us to speak of reminding God of something, but that's exactly how the Bible speaks. In Exodus chapter 2, verse 23 and 24, the people were in slavery in Egypt. And the Bible says they cried out to God, and God remembered his covenant, and God delivered his people. In the book of Nehemiah, five times, Nehemiah cried out to the Lord, remember me, remember me, remember me. The thief on the cross says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom, in Luke 23, verse 42. You see, friends, when the Bible speaks of God remembering, it's not so much he's calling to mind something, but he's calling to mind something in order for him to act. So when he remembers his covenant with the people of Israel in Egypt, the very next thing he does is he delivers them from slavery. When he remembers Nehemiah, he protects him from their enemies. And when he remembers the thief on the cross, he says to him, today you will be with me in paradise. In other words, friends, the memorial portion is what we give to God in acknowledgement of who we are and who he is, and it's a plea to God to act on our behalf. Two things are taking place when we offer the memorial portion to the Lord. Number one, we're acknowledging our neediness. We're acknowledging the fact that he is God and we are not. We're acknowledging the fact that every breath we have comes from him. We're acknowledging the fact that all that we have, all that we own, all that we enjoy comes from him. We're acknowledging our neediness. But the second thing we do in offering up the memorial portion of the grain offering is to make a plea to God. As we acknowledge that we are needy, we come to the place where we recognize that we cannot live lives that are independent of God. We need God to save us. We need God to deliver us. We need God to make us productive for him. So offering up the memorial portion of the grain offering is both an acknowledgement of who we are, but also a plea to God. Now friends, when we give our time, our talent, and our treasure to God, we are acknowledging to God that we are nothing without him. And we are making a plea to him to act on our behalf, to save us, to deliver us, and to make us productive for him. Come with me to, to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. This is another portion of scripture where Paul speaks about a gift. 
Now in verse 5, he mentions the gift. And once again, in this context, the gift is financial support for gospel ministry. Look at what he says in verse 6, 8, and 11. And I want you to notice that Paul uses an agricultural metaphor to describe how you're supposed to give the gift. I suspect he's borrowing themes from Leviticus 2, speaking in agricultural terms. Look at verse 6. It says, Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. If you give sparingly, you will reap sparingly. But if you give generously, look at what verse 8 says. God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things and at all times, you may abound in every good work. And the result is, verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. You see what Paul is saying here? When we offer our time, talent, and treasure to God in a sparing way, God responds in a sparing way. But if we are generous in offering our time and our talent and our treasure to God, God responds in a generous way. When we come before him acknowledging our helplessness and yet making a plea through this offering for God to move on our behalf, that is a prayer that God is pleased to answer. God is pleased to act on behalf of his people. Now, some of you are thinking, isn't this the prosperity gospel? If I give to God, he will make me rich and give me lots of money and make me happy and give me cars and give me houses and give me all of these different things. Well, no, friends, because if you look carefully at what God promises, what God promises is not to satisfy your material desires and to feed your greed. What God promises is if you are generous, he will enable you to be even more generous and to be a greater blessing to others for the sake of the gospel. That is what God is promising here. He is not promising that he will meet all of our material desires and wants and longings, but he is saying that if you are generous with your time, your talent, and your treasure, he will multiply your time, your talent, and your treasure to enable you to always be generous for the work of the Lord. And friends, that is what the memorial portion of the grain offering presents to us. It's a great promise that as we make a plea to God and acknowledge him for who he is, he is pleased to answer and enrich us in every way so that we can be generous in such a way that produces thanksgiving to God. The second thing that the grain offering does is that it supplies. Now you'll notice that one portion of the grain offering is burnt up on the altar as the memorial offering. What happens to the rest of the grain offering? Well, verse 3 and 10 says that the rest of the grain offering, whether it's in the form of uh, flour mixed with frankincense or first fruits roasted with uh, uh, frankincense or, or it's the bread or, or the waffle or the pancake, the rest of it goes to Aaron and his sons. Look at verses 3 and 10. Now, who was Aaron? course, we have an elder Aaron here. It's different Aaron. Okay. Uh, sorry, I had to mention that. Um, Aaron and his sons, who were they? Well, Aaron and his sons were the priests. 
The priests were those who were called by God to dedicate themselves completely to the worship rituals in the tabernacle. And because God had called them to this work, they could not do ordinary work to support both themselves and their families. And so through the grain offering, God would arrange a way for them to be supported and cared for as they gave themselves to the worship rituals in the tabernacle. Now, friends, what about us in the New Testament? Come with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we'll be looking at two verses, verse 13 and verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13 and verse 14. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 13 says this. Paul says this. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? Paul is making an allusion to Leviticus 2. Those who served in the temple got their food from the sacrificial offerings in the temple. And then in verse 14, he says, In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. You see what Paul is saying here? He's equating the priestly work that was done in the temple with the gospel work that is done in the New Testament. Gospel workers in the New Testament are supported by the church. In other words, friends, those who God has genuinely called to the work of gospel ministry, and we're not talking about the charlatans and those who are just out there for your money, those who are genuinely called and set apart for gospel ministry, they are to give themselves totally to the work of gospel ministry. And as a result, they're not able to do ordinary work to support themselves and their families. And so, we as God's people are called to support them in this work. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Here you go again, the church asking for money, 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 money again. It's you religious people, you're all about money. Well, let me just give you a brief response to that. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 7. This is Paul describing the manner in which we're supposed to bring our tithes and our offerings to church. Paul says, we're not to give reluctantly or under compulsion, but cheerfully, which means any giving to God that is forced or coerced or manipulated is not the offering that God wants. The offering that God wants is given willingly and cheerfully. You see, friends, think about it. Whatever you truly treasure and whatever you truly value and find valuable, you have no issues giving your time, talent, and treasure to those things. If you treasure food, you give yourself to food. If you treasure travel, you give yourself to travel. If you treasure entertainment, you give yourself to entertainment. If you treasure a particular cause, you give yourself to a particular cause. If you're infatuated by the particular person, let me tell you, you're going to give your time, your talent, and your treasure to try to woo this person. Whatever you find valuable and of value, you find no trouble giving your time, talent, and treasure to. And that is what God is telling us about gospel 
ministry. You need to come to a place that you see the treasure and beauty of gospel ministry. You need to come to a place where you acknowledge that those who are called to set aside all of their time to the work of gospel ministry, that that is not just a worthy cause, that is a valuable and beautiful thing that should receive our support. And how do you do that, friends? You can only do that if you've truly tasted of the goodness of God through the gospel. And when you've experienced that, you've tasted that, you know it and you relish it, you cannot help but want for this gospel to continue to feed you, but also to feed others. When you value the gospel, you will value gospel ministry. And when you value gospel ministry, you will give freely and cheerfully without compulsion and without needing to be manipulated. And that's the kind of offering that God calls us to, where we acknowledge the beauty of the gospel because we have tasted of the gospel, we've tasted of the goodness of God, and we want to see that goodness and that gospel spread, and we give willingly. Number three, the grain offering is also purifying. Now, if you look at verses 11 to 13, it tells us some things that are not to be added to the grain offering and some things that must be added to the grain offering. Come with me to verse 11. Verse 11 says, You shall burn no leaven nor any honey as a food offering to the Lord. Verse 13 says, You must always offer the grain offering with salt. If you look at verse 1, 2, 4, 5, 6, 7, 15, and 16, it also says you must always put oil, and in this context, it's probably olive oil, into your offering. So the offering of grain, whatever form it takes, cannot have leaven and cannot have honey, but it must have oil and it must have salt. Why, friends? Why can't it have leaven and honey? Well, friends, at the very most basic, at the most basic level, leaven and honey cause fermentation. And fermentation to the Israelites was a symbol of corruption and impurity. And that's why in Matthew 16, verse 6, Jesus said, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So you're not allowed to have leaven and honey in the offering as a symbol of offering up a pure and untainted offering to the Lord. In other words, God wants your offering, your grain offering, your time, talent, and treasure to be offered in purity, untainted with corruption. Why salt, friends? Well, if you look at Leviticus 2.13, it's not just any salt. It's the salt of the covenants. I mean, Numbers 18.19, it says, It is a covenant of salt forever before the Lord. Salt gives us a sense or a picture of the kind of covenant or the kind of relationship that God has with us. You see, friends, salt is a preservative. But more than that, the ancients believed that salt could not be destroyed by time, or by fire. 
So salt is a picture of an eternal and unbreakable covenant relationship that God has with us, his people. You see, when God comes and says, I will be your God and you will be my people, he's saying, I will be your God forever and you will be my people forever. It's an unbreakable, unchanging covenant relationship that God has with his people. And so when we offer the grain offering, it must be offered in the context of this kind of a relationship that we have with Almighty God. The offering is meant to be pure, without corruption, and it's meant to be within the context of our understanding of this unbreakable covenant relationship that God has with us, his people. Now, why oil? Why must oil be added to the offering? You see, friends, in the Old Testament, when kings and priests were set apart to serve God, they were anointed with oil. This oil is a picture of the Holy Spirit. And the picture given there is that this person is now set apart uniquely by God for his role as a king or as a priest. And that's the picture here. When we offer our offerings to God with oil, we're setting apart this offering uniquely for God. But friends, oil tells us another story as well. It tells us how we are to offer our offerings to God. In Psalm 45, verse 7, the psalmist says, You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God your God has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Oil is not just a picture of setting apart something for God. It's doing it with joy and gladness. This is incredibly purifying because this is the kind of attitude that God wants his people to have in offering the grain offering to him. It must come with no corruption, with purity, but it must come within the context of this eternal and unchanging and unbreakable covenant relationship, and it must be given wholeheartedly and with joy. Now, friends, once again, let's go back to 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7 in the New Testament. Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Even in the New Testament, we're meant to give to God out of a sense of cheerful joy. We're meant to give to God within the context of an internal, unbreakable covenant relationship that God has established with us through Jesus Christ. And there must be a purity of motive as we make our offering to God. It must not come out of compulsion. It must not come reluctantly. It must not come out of a sense of wanting to exalt ourselves that offering must be given to God, that talent, that treasure, that time, with pure motive, out of joy, within the context of God's eternal and unchanging covenant relationship with us. Don't you see, friends? God calling us to give of ourselves to Him, 
give of our wealth to him, it's a spiritual practice that helps us to recalibrate our hearts to what is truly precious and good and beautiful. It's a purifying work in our lives. Now, friends, you realize that it's so much easier to give reluctantly and out of compulsion. And it's not really very easy to give joyfully. I know, you know in certain settings, they say you have to give joyfully, and so they pray, play a fast song, and that's supposed to represent your joy. But it's not really very genuine, isn't it? It's, it's actually much easier to give out of reluctance and compulsion. And Jeremiah comes up again, tells you about the QR code again. Okay, la, okay, la, give la, give la, okay, la, give la. Nah, done la, okay, move on, move on, right? That's much easier, isn't it? I've done my duty. It's over. But God says, no, friends. That is not the kind of offering that he wants. The kind of offering he wants must come willingly and cheerfully out of a grateful heart filled with gratitude to him for all that he has done. You see, friends, by nature, we're selfish. We're stingy. By nature, we want to keep as much for ourselves as possible. By nature, we are like that. But in spite of all of that, Ephesians 5.2 says Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. You see, friends, at the cross, God shows us his eternal, unshakable, and undeserved covenant love for his own. And it's a love that he pours out on us, not when we are most ready, but when we are most reluctant. Not when we were most generous, but when we were most greedy. And there's more, friends. Hebrews 12, chapter 2 says, For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Yes, friends, it was a painful sacrifice. But Jesus, in giving himself up for you and for your sins and for your salvation, he did not doing it, do it begrudgingly. He did not say, you dirty, rotten sinner, no choice, got to die for you. No, friends. The Bible says he gave himself for you out of joy, not begrudgingly, but in joy, Jesus gave up himself for your sins. That's how pure, that's how strong, that's how sturdy, that's how unshakable and unchanging and beautiful Jesus' love is for you. Look at me for a moment, friends. I think many of you, friends, you're probably convinced that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And many of you would say he willingly died on the cross for your sins. But today, from God's word, he wants you to see that God didn't just, Jesus didn't just die for your sins willingly. He died for your sins joyfully. He gave himself up for your sins, not begrudgingly, but willingly and cheerfully so that he could have you. That is, friends, the kind of love that God has shown us in the person and work 
of Jesus Christ. And that's the kind of love when it melts our hearts will move us to give not reluctantly, not out of compulsion, but cheerfully and joyfully. Tim Keller once wrote this, everything in this life is going to be taken away from us except one thing, and that one thing is God's love. It's a love that can go into death with us and take us through death and into his arms. Friends, the love of Christ is that generous, eternal, and unchangeable, strong love, a love that is stronger even than death. And you have that love, friends, because you have Jesus. These were some of Tim Keller's last words. He said, I'm thankful for all the people who've prayed for me over the years. I'm thankful for my family that loves me. I'm thankful for the time God has given to me. But I'm ready to see Jesus. I can't wait to see Jesus. Send me home. Friends, it's only when you've experienced that kind of love, deep in your heart, that you become the kind of person that says, of course, all of my talent, all of my treasure, all of my time, I offer to you, God. Not begrudgingly, but willingly and joyfully for your glory, for my joy, and for the sake of others. Father, I pray that you would really do a work in our hearts today to convince us, Lord, that this is the nature of your love for us. It is an eternal and unchangeable and unshakable love that was given to us cheerfully and willingly when Jesus went to the cross for our sins. And I pray that, Father, we as your people would not be satisfied with merely trifling with that love, but we would want to immerse ourselves so completely in this love that it gives us a sturdiness, a strength, even a joy in the midst of adversity and every challenge. It gives us a hope and a joy and a freedom to be your children and to live not for the fleeting things in this world, but for eternal glory and love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, we're about to partake the Lord's Supper together. And if... Um, Oh, yeah, that's for the first service. The, the Lord's Supper is a time where we come face-to-face -face with the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ again. Uh, the bread represents the broken body of Jesus, and the blood represents the blood of Jesus shed for our sins. So there's some children among us, and the children who have not made profession of faith uh, will not take the Lord's Supper, but it's an opportunity again for us to ex explain the Lord's Supper to our children. So parents and uncles and aunties and kokos and tietes, now is the time. Uh, to explain the gospel again by telling the children that are in our church the meaning of the bread and the meaning of the wine. I'll refer to you to page 10. Now, in our church, we welcome all baptized Christians who have publicly professed their faith and are members in good standing of a local church to participate in the Lord's Supper with us. 
if you're not able to participate, uh, let me just say we're so joyful and so happy for you to be among us. We often have times where non-Christians even come into our church and exploring the gospel. Let me just say we're so thankful that you're here. But because of the nature of the Lord's Supper, we'd ask you to refrain. Instead, we want to invite you to join us as we reflect on two things, our sinfulness and yet the greatness of our Savior. And there are two ways you can do this. There are two prayers here on page 10. One is a prayer for the searching. You might be searching and you might be longing to see if Jesus is real. Why don't you use this prayer to cry out to God and to ask him to reveal himself to you? The second is a prayer of belief. Maybe you've come to a point where you're ready to admit your sinfulness and embrace Christ for yourself. These words are not magic, but they might just express the desire of your heart. Why don't you take the opportunity to use these words to pray to God and ask him into your life? For all of us, let's take a moment to prepare ourselves to take the Lord's Supper together. Let's come confessing our sins to God. Perhaps it's something that spoke to you through the message as the word of God was unpacked. Bring that to God. But remember, friends, for every look at your sins, take 10 looks at the Christ who died on the cross for your sins. Let's take a moment to prepare our hearts to partake in the Lord's Supper.